So as uh, Tim said, we are in the book of 1 Peter. If you're new here with us, uh, we've been working our way through the book of 1 uh, Peter uh, since the beginning of the fall. As I was uh, thinking about this, um, this whole sermon series in 1 Peter in the summer, you know, I was looking ahead and like, man, this, this is going to be good. There's lots of great, helpful instruction in here. I mean, the whole beginning about the imperishable hope that we have in Christ, uh, what it means to live as exiles in this hostile world. So much good stuff. However, it's now week three uh, on the subject of submission to authority, and it's been a little tough. Um, it's getting more and more personal, you, you might have noticed. So we began with submission to government. That was tough enough. Then last week, submission at school and work. And now, uh, it's submission in the home. Specifically, verses one to six are about how wives should submit to their husbands. So ladies, I feel your eyes on me. <laughs> It's wonderful. Some of you have already come and talked to me last week about how to understand this text. I've had some single ladies come and say how happy they are to be single. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, how do we approach a text like this that is so contrary to our, our modern ideas? Um, there are some biblical commentators that spend a lot of time trying to explain why God would say something like this, kind of in an apologetic way. They, they focus a lot on the historical context, or um, they try to focus on the fact that, look, it's mentioning uh, wives with unbelieving husbands, so maybe that's really what, who God is speaking to. Uh, they often try to soften the language to make it more palatable. So my approach uh, will be, I hope, uh, tactful, gentle, clear, uh, but it will not be apologetic. And that's for the simple reason that I think one thing that should be clear to us is that we as human beings on our own, uh, we are not fantastic at being married to one another. Uh, we need a lot of help. On our own, we, we tend to make a mess of things. Even in the church, those of us who are married, a lot of our prayer life is directed towards asking for God's help in our marriage, to try to love each other well, to try to forgive, to try to be soft-hearted. So it seems to me that passages like this one are actually God's uh, answer to our prayers for help. And the fact that it goes against some of the, the modern way of thinking, I think, is a good sign. Because if the Bible only told us to do things that we were already doing, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really be much help. What we really need is the Spirit of God uh, to soften our hearts so that we would be shaped by the Word of God. That we would see the hope and the blessing and the wisdom that is revealed to us through scripture and that it would actually impact us in our lives and in our marriage. So, so that's been my prayer in anticipation of this text and this morning that we would actually hear from the Lord, both men and women, we'd be shaped by it. So let's dig into the text. Uh, it's verses one to six today. And then verse seven will be next week. We'll focus on the husbands, just so you're aware kind of where we're going. So here's uh, God's word to us this morning. <clears throat> Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, 
and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So that's God's word to us this morning. Uh, We're going to work it through in three parts. First, a word uh, to wives, then a word to women, and then uh, the example that God gives in Sarah as a submissive uh, wife. So firstly, God's word to wives is very clearly, submit and show respect to your husbands. Uh, We see this in verse 1. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I thought it'd be helpful if as we begin, I deal with um, some objections to this text, just kind of the straightforward reading of this text. Uh, Probably the main objection that people will have is they will say, look, what we're reading here in 1 Peter is just half of the biblical principle of mutual submission. So they'll very often point to Ephesians chapter 5, which does contain this principle. Here it is on the screen. Uh, Verse 17 says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then jump to verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what people will say is, look, see, Peter is just explaining one side of this equation. What God really means is for wives to submit to husbands and husbands to submit to wives. And uh, obviously that principle is in scripture that as Christians, we should be submitting to one another. We should be sacrificing for one another. Uh, We should love each other in in that way. But, But that does not eliminate the authority structures that God has placed in our world. That's what we see in in 1 Peter, that there's authority in our country, uh, in the marketplace, in churches, and in the home. God's put those there for our good, and clearly the people in those roles are to have some sense of authority. Plus, to interpret the text as mutually submit really kind of upends the rest of the passage, because then you'd have to work backwards and say, okay, well then also government should submit to citizens, and managers should submit to the people that they employ, and it it doesn't make sense anymore. So look, Peter wrote what God meant to say. The straightforward reading of the text is, is the best and faithful reading of the text. We do, however, have to acknowledge that um, there can be and has been great pain evoked uh, from people who have misused this text. That throughout the centuries, there have been men who, who claim to be Christians who have wrongly used this teaching to dominate and to abuse their wives. Not only is that a grievous sin, but it's a complete twisting of the teaching of the Bible. So biblical leadership in the home is, is meant to be Christ-like. It's meant to be sacrificial, loving, giving. Husbands are meant to lay down their lives for the sake of their wives as they, as they lead them. And, and next week, we're going to talk a lot more about that as verse 7 kind of leads us in that direction. But let me just say to be very clear that the, the Bible's understanding of the job of men in the church and society is to protect women from abusive situations, not to be the cause of them. And so I would encourage you, uh, ladies, if, if you find yourself in this situation or you're, you're thinking that this element might be present in your marriage, some, some manner of abuse, I would encourage you, please, to reach out to someone. There are people in this church that have gone through that sort of thing that would be willing to help, um, would be ready to help. And I would just say, for us as elders of the church, we see part of our role as to protect the vulnerable within the church. And there have already been situations where we've stepped into situations to help protect a wife who feels vulnerable. So, so please do reach out. There are people here who would, who would have an ear to hear and would, would want to reach in and step into that situation with you. So this text is not about mutual submission. 
It's not a license for abuse. Uh, What else isn't it saying? It isn't a command for all women to submit to all men. Okay, it says in the text, wives be subject to your own husband. Just one guy. I don't know if it makes it better or not, but it's just one guy, okay? Uh, It isn't saying that men are better than women. Obviously, we don't need to give evidence to that. Uh, It isn't saying that wives should submit like a servant to a master. It isn't saying that you should follow your husband into sin. It's not saying even that you have to agree with everything that he says. So what is it saying? What it's saying is this, that wives should have a respectful disposition towards their husband, that you should encourage him, should support him, should value his ideas, listen to what he has to say. You should commit yourself to thinking well of him and making sure that he knows that you're glad to be married to him, even after 30, 40 years, even when he bungles things horribly. It means you defend him in front of others, it means you praise him in prayer, and it means that you follow his lead. This is hugely important uh, to a successful marriage. See, according to the Bible, wives are to love, sorry, husbands are to love their wives sacrificially, and wives are to submit to their husbands respectfully. The two kind of work in concert. And by doing this, you unlock the power of God for your marriage. Because both of these things are rooted in the gospel. Husbands are to sacrifice as Jesus did. Wives are to submit as Jesus did. And what Peter shows us here right away in these first couple of verses is the massive impact that this can have on the hearts in a marriage. So look again at what it says. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Likewise, again, wives be subject to your own husband so that, here's the reason, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. So Peter here is specifically talking about a situation where there's a Christian wife and a non-Christian husband. Now, the Bible's clear that Christians are not to marry non-Christians, but sometimes um, someone comes to faith, which, which is a great thing. But that causes tension uh, very often between the believing spouse and the unbelieving spouse because the unbeliever often feels rejected, often feels left out or maybe judged. And the tendency is for the believing spouse, like the believing wife in this situation, to try to convince her husband to believe. And she probably thinks she's doing it in a very gentle, winsome way, right? She probably says things like, honey, would, would you like to come to church with me tomorrow? I really think that you're going to enjoy it. Honey, uh, would you mind? I think I'd like, could I just read this psalm to you? It'll just take a minute. It's Psalm 119. I think you'll really love it. Just sit back. I just want you to hear the word of God. You're going to love it. And then maybe I could just send you some links to some sermons. It, all of these things, she really thinks, uh, and, and her heart is, is to be loving. I mean, she wants to be faithful to Jesus who says, go and tell everyone about me. So the intention is very, very good. But look, look here at what God is saying. He's saying, wives, if you want to reach your husband, your unbelieving husband, stop talking and start serving. It's the clear understanding of the text. Stop, stop talking so much. Stop trying to convince him and serve him. Reveal Christ to him in the way that you act. I want to read to you um, a letter that was written to a pastor named Kent Hughes. This letter was written uh, about this kind of dynamic uh, by a woman uh, describing her parents' marriage. So here's what she writes. She writes, When my mother and my dad were married, she was a new believer, 
And he had recently come forward in a church service to receive Christ as his savior, but it quickly became evident that my dad had no interest in anything spiritual. So through the years, he would drive us to church. Some years he would attend at Christmas, but he was not a man of faith. My mother, though, faithfully lived for the Lord and taught us from the word. She writes, when I was 13, my mom found out that my dad had been unfaithful. He had an affair. I can still remember a few days later sitting at the kitchen table with my mom. She read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13, which says, If the unbelieving husband wishes to remain, let him remain. That settled it for her. Theirs was not a quote-unquote happy marriage, but we were a family. 29 years later, in a morning service in a small church on his 72nd birthday, my dad stood up at an invitation and truly accepted Jesus as his savior. We were all there in tears. He was a changed man. He prayed, he hosted Bible study in their home. Six years later, he went home to be with the Lord whom he loved. And five years later, my mother went to be with him. She writes, I praise the Lord for his faithfulness and for my mother's obedience to scripture and for her faithful witness over the years. Now look, what I want you to know is that this kind of thing doesn't just happen out there in Bible illustration land, okay? These are great stories. These are real stories. There are people in our congregation, couples who have experienced this. The power of God that comes from a wife who serves her, her husband, one who does not even believe. What we see here is the incredible power of that, that dynamic. And what we see is that God often uses uh, the attitude and the silent prayers of a faithful wife to soften an unbelieving heart. But the other thing I want you to see here is that this is not just reserved for those who have unbelieving husbands. In the text, it says, even if some do not obey the word, talking about husbands, which means he's, Peter's writing to many wives who have husbands that do obey the word, and yet his command is the same. And that means that the potential for powerful heart change is the same in all Christian marriages. So let me ask you this, ladies. And I don't want you to answer out loud. Just think about this. Um, here's the question. Are there things about your husband that you think need to be changed? Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> of course there are, right? Of course there are. Next question. Have you spent time trying to convince him of this with your words? Probably you have. How did that go? Again, don't answer. Just think about it. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. Do you, do you realize the powerful tool that God is giving you in this passage? Think about it. If it's saying that the submissive, respectful, and pure conduct of a godly wife can be used by God to bring someone who is dead spiritually to life, don't you think that God could also use that same dynamic to bring about other lesser heart change? Like other softening of a heart in your husband, Christian husband, who just doesn't see his sin the way that he should? I mean, heart issue is the issue, isn't it, in marriage? It's, it's the thing that ends up causing conflict. The great thing about marriage, of course, is that we see each other's sin so much more clearly than we do in other relationships because we're closer. We also see sin clearly because we, we experience it. So ladies, you, you know the areas of sin that your husband is probably unclear about. You, you've seen his, his anger, his self-indulgence, his fear, his lust, his laziness, his pride, all, all, all of these things. You not only see its effects, 
you feel them. And you want for him to change, not, not just for your own sake, not just selfishly, but for his sake, for his walk with the Lord, for all that God wants to do in his life. And so you wonder to yourself, how can I help him to see this clearly? How can I help him to get to the point where, where he would change in the way that God wants? And the answer is in our text. Verse two, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. It's the principle of submission and respect. Now you may say, okay, Matt, I, I see that there, but you know, I really think the issue is if, we could just, if I could just talk with my husband and he would listen to me, that that's the missing piece. Because I'm really clear, and I can see it really clearly. I know exactly how he needs to change. So if he would just listen, then, I mean, the submissive thing could work, but me talking, I think that could be helpful. And I would say it could be. I'd say you could give it a try. You might, you might get some short-term behavioral change if you are at him long enough. You'll wear him down. But my guess, my guess is that through the process, you will drive a wedge between the two of you, emotionally, where he'll change on the outside, but on the inside, there'll still be a hardness there. So listen, what if, what if you took to heart what was being said here? Like, what if you committed yourself to fasting and praying for your husband? What if you served him, cared for him, genuinely, not, not as a form of manipulation, but, but genuinely as Christ has served you? What if you remembered how long it has taken you to see certain areas of sin in your life? And prayed that God might continue to reveal that in your own heart. What if, you, what if you allowed the Holy Spirit to be the one to convict your husband? To pray that that would happen. And, and to pray that you would have patience to wait until the right time to start talking about these things. See, I can, I can testify to you that, that this does work in marriage. That there's been a number of seasons in our life for Don and I in our 20 years of marriage where this dynamic has happened, where one of us has been blind to our sin, hard-hearted about it. The other person has tried to talk about it, goes horrible, fights, disagreements. And then there's a conviction of just, of just being quiet about it, praying about it, serving the other person. And it takes a while, just so you're, we're clear. I mean, there's been times we've prayed for each other, not for weeks or months, even, even years for things, but here's the amazing thing. There is a time in God's timing when all of a sudden the other person will bring something up. will say, you know, the Lord's been, man, I've just been feeling convicted about this. Have you noticed this? Or I'm not sure what to do with this. All of a sudden you're having the conversation you've been wanting to have, but it goes so much better because God is the one who is at work. He's actually softening the heart and you can actually have the conversation that you need to have. Listen, it should not surprise us that God would work through submission. All the hope and the grace in our lives have come through the submission of Jesus to the cross. This is the way that God works. It isn't, it isn't quick. It isn't easy. But it is powerful and it is God honoring. And, and you will grow in the process. So I want to ask a couple practical questions. As we go along, I want to try to ask some, some practical questions. Here's one. Does, does this mean then, as a wife, I can never disagree with my husband? Of course not. Of course not. But there's a difference between respectful disagreement and, and cutting him down to size. 
right? Making him feel small. Big difference between those two things. Does this mean uh, that a husband always has to make the decisions? No. No, in fact, uh, most of the time, decision-making in a Christian marriage will look like any uh, good example of teamwork. I mean, God has brought you both together, different skills, different gifts, different capacities, so it should look like a lot of listening to each other, a lot of discussing, a lot of outside counsel, and those things you, you can't quite agree on, but there are times uh, on a team, on any team, when there isn't total agreement and yet a decision has to be made. In those kinds of situations, when they're big things, uh, the husband should be the one to make the decision because he is the one who is going to be held to account for the family. Think of Adam and Eve. Things went horribly wrong, and yet it was Adam that God called out in the garden. He was the head. And so in big decisions, now people always ask for examples. Here's an example, schooling for children. That's a decision that eventually has to be made. You may have very different ideas, homeschool, private school, Christian school, whatever it is, public school, and, and you should start early, talk a lot, get outside counsel, talk to people it seems to have gone well with, but it, there may come a day, September's coming, you have to decide what are we going to do. In the end, that's the kind of thing where the wife would say, look, we, we've talked a lot about it, I trust that God is at work and you, you, you make the final call. Because again, at the end, end of the day, it will be the husband that God holds to account for how his children are, are discipled. That's just the nature of of the home, of family, of how God has orchestrated things. So, so first point, wives, submit to your husband, show respect. But next, Peter widens the scope to something that can be applied to all godly women. So here's number two, God's word to women, cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. Here's verses three and four. Uh, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So obviously here there's a contrast between internal and external adorning. Uh, could be ornamentation, beauty in a sense. Now he's not saying here that you should never braid your hair or never wear jewelry or never wear clothes, obviously. He's saying... He's saying, don't let your sense of worth or value be wrapped up in those external things. Now, back in the first century, culture was not that much different. Back then, it was a struggle for women. They they had put a lot of stock in the way they did their hair, spent a lot of time on that, clothes. It was very important. It was very easy for a woman in that day to kind of get her sense of self-confidence, her sense of worth because of her beauty externally. Peter's intent here is to reveal the inherent flaw in that kind of a focus back then and and today. Because not only does external beauty fade, but it also twists the soul inward in unstable and damaging ways. I mean, we can see this very clearly. We don't have to look far in our culture to see this. Uh, If you you were listening when... uh, That Facebook whistleblower came out revealing all the documentations from Facebook, right? Some of the stats in there, the internal analysis that Facebook was doing about Facebook, about Instagram, was the damaging effect that it had on on young people. So some of the stats, uh, it says one in three teenage girls that they studied said that using one of these apps made them feel worse about their body and about themselves, 13.5% of those who struggled with thoughts of self-harm and suicide said those apps made them feel worse. And it's not hard to imagine why, because the whole point of those apps is to focus on the externals, 
to, to compare ourselves to other people, their lives, the, the way they look, and it ends up uh, making us feel horrible on the inside. The, the focus on the external never actually brings us what we think it will. It doesn't bring us joy, doesn't bring us peace, doesn't bring us satisfaction, because there's always someone who looks better, no matter how many setups we do, how many clothes we buy, and because it all fades anyway. The antidote that we find here in the text is to focus on the internal things that God is doing, the substantial, permanent things that God is doing in our soul. That's, that's where we should anchor our sense of self, the fact that the Spirit of God is within us and that he is at work, that he is changing us for the better, for the, for the glory of God, and that because he's at work, we, we don't have to be tossed to and fro by the opinions of the people who, who look at us. So what Peter does is he sets that kind of basic principle of focusing on what's going on inside us, inner beauty, and then for women, he highlights one key aspect of that, which he, which he says is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, a gentle and quiet spirit, he says, is precious in God's sight. So why would that be? Why would that be precious to God? Gentleness, quietness. Well, I think in part, it's because those things are manifestations of faith and manifestations of holiness. If you think about it from the other direction, people, people who are harsh, people who are argumentative, they tend to struggle with humility. It tends to be about, about them. People who talk a lot but listen very little, they tend to have trouble trusting others. And trusting God because they're not used to or interested in that outside direction or counsel. So, so wives who behave this way will find it hard to glorify God in their marriage. Because most of the time, most things will end up being about them. And they will tend to have passive husbands because they will have learned it's, it's easier just not to step up. They're going to get steamrolled over again and again. Now this, this isn't about every wife or every marriage. But this is something that all women should consider. Because the water we swim in as a culture keeps telling us that the best thing for women is to be self-sufficient, is to be independent, to be brash at times if necessary. But the thing is, Jesus was none of those things. Right? Jesus was, was submissive. He submitted to authority. He humbled himself on the cross. He loved and served those who were harsh with him. So ladies, I know, it, I know it seems better to hold the reins of your marriage, but the word of God is, is pushing you again and again to see the greater value in humility, in gentleness, in submission to God for all women and for those who are married to their, to their husbands. So practical question. Uh, does this mean that loud women or strong women can't be godly women? Not at all. No, in fact, God cares much more about the attitude of the heart than the volume of the voice. You can have a very quiet woman who's very stubborn, very hard-hearted, very unsubmissive. You can have a very loud woman who has a generosity of spirit. It's, it's not the volume, it's the attitude. Also, God loves strong women. They've always been part of his plans. We see that throughout the, the text of scripture, and in particular in this passage, we see him point to a woman who's very strong as an example of submissiveness. So we're going to turn our attention there now to Sarah. Uh, point number three, Sarah, a realistic example of submission. Uh, I'll read verses five and six again. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, 
by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So if you know Sarah, you know that she was not a wallflower. She was a strong woman. Uh, if you look at her life, it was, a, it was a challenging life. She was called to submit to Abraham and follow him as he went out into the unknown, leaving their home, uh, not knowing where they would go. She struggled with infertility for, for basically her whole life. She was headstrong, even harsh at times, especially uh, with the whole Hagar debacle. You see kind of her inner nature come out. Now, at first glance, uh, the reference that Peter gives here, it sounds fairly submissive, right? Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, not Lord God, but just a sign of respect. But if we look carefully at the only instance in Scripture where it's recorded that she calls him Lord, uh, it, it gives a, a fuller understanding of, of kind of her and her struggle. So it comes from the time when um, the, the Lord is there with the angels and they're basically telling Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. Right? And they're super old, and it seems crazy. And I want you to see how Sarah responds. Here's Genesis 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, and my, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's laughing, right? It's ridiculous. Then God reprimands her. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall, indeed, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So clearly... Clearly, Sarah struggled. She struggled to submit, struggled with her attitude, struggled to believe in the promises of God. But here's the interesting thing about Sarah. In the end, she did humble herself. She did master her doubts. We know this because all the way in the book of Hebrews, uh, it looks back and uh, it, uh, it com commends her for her faith. Look at Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So what I think we're meant to see here is a connection, a parallel uh, between the struggle with faith and a struggle with submission. Sarah's doubting of God's promise in Genesis is, I think, similar to the struggle that many women have to submit to this command of God, that in marriage they should be respectful and submissive. I think women tend to respond kind of like Sarah did, with a sense of incredulous laughter, <laughs> Submitting to my husband, to, to him? Do you know my husband, by the way? Do you know what he's like? Do you, do you know how little he does? Do you know how much I do? do? Do you know how he treats me? I mean, honestly, I'm supposed to just believe that this is going to go better in my marriage if I treat him this way? The natural response seems to be laughter. But ladies, notice, notice what God's word is to you. It's the same word that he had to Sarah. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, is it, is it really better to reject my instructions and to go your own way? See, this, what Peter's saying in this text the whole way through is, look, God can be trusted. 
Women who give themselves to this pattern of life, even though, like it says in her text, it's frightening to a certain extent, they will be helped, they will be blessed. Now, this doesn't mean it's going to be quick, right? With Sarah, it still took a while for her to conceive. And it doesn't mean that you should never speak up. But it does mean that you should see this as yet another opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to entrust yourself to the Father, to believe that he intends good for your life and for your marriage, that he wants to unleash the power of the Spirit of God in your marriage, and it only happens when you walk in his ways. So here's a couple of ways to apply this. Okay, we'll do ladies and the men. Ladies, if you feel like this is an issue for you, meaning if you're thinking that perhaps there are some areas of your life and your marriage where you're not being as respectful as you should, I'd encourage you just to go to prayer. Go to pray. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you, Lord, is there some area? I mean, I think I'm being submissive. I don't think I'm being a difficult wife, but Lord, we're all blinded by our sin. God, would you help me to see Maybe certain areas, maybe certain uh, topics of conversation that I'm just, I'm hard-hearted about. And as he reveals it to you, confess. Deal with it the way we always deal with sin. Confess it to God. Confess to your husband. Find, find unity, find peace at the cross. And then look, look for ways to respect your husband. Trust God with the things in your marriage that you think need to be changed that are outside of your control. And, and lean into the promises and the love and the leading of the Lord. For guys, husbands, uh, we need to be clear about a couple things. One in particular, uh, this passage is not ammunition for you. Notice, uh, there's nothing in here about what you should do. It's not saying here that husbands, you should try to enforce this command, or you should bring this up, or you should, you should talk about it. It's, it's not up to you to try to make your wife submit. If you think that this is an issue in your marriage, if you think this is something that your wife needs to grow in, the best thing that you can do is to be a man who's easy to submit to, to be respectable, to be loving, to be gracious, to be sacrificial, to be serving your wife as Christ loved the church. That, that's on you. That's what you can do today. To confess sin uh, quickly, to ask for help quickly. If you want credibility as a leader, you should be humble enough to recognize there's a lot of things you don't know, a lot of things you're going to mess up, and it would be best for you to ask for help, especially from your wife. Your call is to love her like Jesus, and in that way, it will be easier for her to submit to you like Jesus. That's how this is supposed to work. See, ultimately, ultimately, he is the source of hope for our marriage, Jesus, the cross, the place we come to to recognize our own sin, our need for a savior should tell us that that the grace we've received is meant to be passed on. It softens the stoniest heart because we see ourselves more clearly in light of the perfection of Christ. How can we still be hard-hearted with the people who we're in in relationship with, in all sorts of relationships, but especially in marriage? See, Peter's call to submission is, is really a call for us to find vibrant life in Christ, in our lives as individuals, and and in marriage. So, to finish it off, I would like to just read a few verses from Proverbs 31, uh, the Proverbs woman, an example of godliness, and because I I want us to see that here we find um, a different kind of laughter, a laughter that's rooted in the peace that she finds in God. So here's a few verses. 
Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And then verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She laughs because she trusts in the Lord. She knows that he intends good for her, and she's walking in his ways. That's my prayer for you ladies of the church and for our marriages. So let's close in prayer to that effect. Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that you would help us, help those of us who are married to uh, humble ourselves before you, before your teaching. Lord, it's a difficult thing uh, to be told what to do in any area of our life. And yet, Lord, the truth is that you love us, you know us, and you know what's best for us. So I pray, please, that there would be a genuine softening of hearts for the ladies of our church, for the wives here. Help them, God. Give them the capacity uh, to live this out, to, to serve their husbands in this way. And Lord, please, I pray for the husbands that they would indeed serve their wives as well, that they would lead in a way that is godly, a way that is Christ-like. And Lord, I pray that the, the people around us, I pray for our young people in our church, for the kids, Lord, that they would see that this, this is what it means to be a godly man and a, a godly uh, woman. This is what it looks like in marriage. This is how things can work well for our good and for your glory. And I pray the same thing would be seen by those outside the church. Lord, that we wouldn't have the same stats when it comes to divorce, that we wouldn't have the same problems, Lord. We, we have those problems, but Lord, may we find solutions in you. Lord, may we humble ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. And please, Holy Spirit, shape us and mold us in the way that glorifies God and is a blessing to us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.